Morning, church. Well, we love you more than you know, and this, this week was a wonderful week where our pastors went for uh, a two-day day retreat uh, at Gateway Seminary, where we got to plan together, you know, solidify more of, of understanding our vision and maybe some of the first steps. Uh, and keep in mind that this is the first retreat since the transition of various staff members, so we're really getting traction for the first time. And so because of that, you know, we revisited our, our vision and what I've done uh, this morning to begin with, and I think we'll, we'll try to do this more regularly as well, um, oops, is that uh, you have the full vision statement every single week uh, on the backside of your bulletin. And many of you guys have heard this. If you've been with us, you've heard it over and over again. And I think in the first few years, we've talked a lot about God's word, God's family, and God's world. You just heard Pastor Terrence refer to intergenerational discipleship within God's family. You've also heard the, the distinctives of being biblical, intergenerational, missional. We continue to use that verbiage. I know it's a lot of language, and I know that it's not just sentences, but it, it's, it's really the heart of what matters. But now, we're really talking about how do we equip ourselves, how do we become mobilized as everyday disciple makers and missionaries. And so the vision simplified just so you can really remember the core action item or the core essence is we want to be a church, a vibrant church of disciple makers that reproduces vibrant churches. I mean, that, that's basically the action item, right? We want to be a vibrant church, a healthy church, a growing church, a church that grows deep in terms of, of, of fidelity to doctrine and scripture, as well as deep in our relationships, as well as deep in our sanctification and maturity. At, at the same time, we want to go wide for God's kingdom. We want to be missional. We want to reach our neighborhood, our workplaces, our schools, and the world for Jesus. And the Great Commission calls us to make disciples of all nations. Therefore, we are to reproduce. So that's the core essence. That's the core action. And you've heard these four phrases before, too. And so in every congregation, it's the same. Uh, they've translated it to, it, it to Chinese. But if you were to ask the question, well, what does a vibrant church look like? Uh, what does a disciple maker look like? Well, there are four things. A disciple maker or a vibrant church is filled with people who love passionately, live authentically, give generously, and go courageously and still what does that mean, right? So to live, to love passionately is basically Jesus gave the great commission to make disciples of all nations. And if you were to ask Jesus, what do those disciples look like? He said, well, I gave you the great commandment. It's to love God and to love people, right? And so we are to love God and to love people passionately through Christ. What does it mean to live authentically? Well, we want to be disciple makers, the great commission. So it means to live lives as genuine disciples, not just Sunday Christians, not just Friday night Christians or Wednesday Christians, though those of you who join us on Wednesdays are usually not Sunday Christians because that is a very vibrant group, but to live authentically as genuine disciples. And then to give generously, not just money, but stewardship. And you've heard this over and over again, right, which is our time, our talents, and our treasure. How do we as individuals see that God has given us not only a corporate calling to make disciples, but an individual calling and gifts, spiritual gifts and natural God-given skills? How can we give generously of ourselves for his kingdom? And fourth, go courageously. We're constantly emphasizing missions and going out the four walls. 
You know, if we love passionately, if we live authentically, if we give generously, then the natural outpour is to go courageously into the world. And that is actually a perfect time to talk about this because our little mini-series calls us to live courageously and to go courageously into this world, especially in trying times. The title of today's sermon is The Last Days According to Jesus, Part 2. And so last week was Part 1. If you missed that, um, you can find that on our website or on our YouTube page. But The Last Days According to Jesus, Part 2. And so last week we began this three-week mini-series focused on the end times because as we move through the Gospel of Mark, this is the section where Jesus talks about his Olivet Discourse. He talks about the end times. He talks about the last days. And what he's doing is he's preparing his disciples for events that were to come for them. And namely, the fall of the temple in AD 70, the destruction of the temple. But last week, we kind of gave an introduction that Jesus speaks prophetically, which means that he refers back to the Old Testament, which means he uses language that has multiple levels of fulfillment. When Jesus says in Mark 13 that the temple is going to fall, his disciples ask him, well, when are these events going to happen? So at one level, he answers their question. He gives them some signs. He gives them answers. When these things occur, then you will know, and then we know that that was fulfilled in AD 70. That was last week's sermon, right? But that the temple fell in AD 70 when Titus and the Roman army marched in and burned Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. So Jesus was talking about that event. But at the same time, in the very same chapter, Jesus begins to talk about his second coming, and Jesus begins to talk about great tribulation that would happen immediately before his second coming. And so you're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Are you talking about something that's going to happen in AD 70? Are you talking about something that Daniel talked about that happened long before your coming? Or are you talking about the end times? And Jesus doesn't say it specifically, but he's talking about all three. And so that's why last week I said you got to pay attention. You got to pay attention because this is not a diff- this is a difficult passage to go through and, and a difficult topic. And even in our well, it's Lord's Supper week, so in our thirty five minutes or forty minutes today, there's only so much we can go into. But uh, we're setting up for next week when we talk about the the second coming. And of the three passages, if we broke this mini series into three sermons, this one has the most information, most difficult information. Next week is simple. Jesus is going to come back. Nobody knows when, right? But we need to be ready. But so today we're going to talk about the abomination of desolation. Before you turn there, we're going to see three things, right? We're going to see what is the abomination of desolation? What is it? Why is it still future? And how shall we live in light of it? Again, three things concerning the abomination of desolation, which is the language that Jesus uses, right? What is it? Why do we believe that it's still future based on scripture? And how shall we live in light of it? Now, if you have God's word, please take it and turn with me now to Mark 13, where we will see these things. Mark 13, Mark 13, starting in verse 14. Mark 13, starting in verse 14. I'll give you a moment to turn there or a moment to pull it up on your electronic device, right? Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 14. 
Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 14. We're going to go to verse 23 today. Let me read this to you. Mark writes this. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now, these are the words of Jesus. This is Jesus' instruction to his disciples. And remember the question. Right? Remember what I just said. Jesus said the temple is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to fall. They're asking, when is this going to happen? So this is happening. So Jesus is teaching this to them before AD 70. And Jesus last week talked about events that would lead up to AD 70. And today he starts talking about this abomination of desolation. Now, what is it? Right? I think, I think that we need to go out of Mark today because we need to understand the context. If you were Jesus' disciples, you would be Jewish, and this language, abomination of desolation, would make sense to you. You would understand very clearly what Jesus is talking about. He's making an Old Testament reference to history, but also to prophecy. But first, let's first understand the phrases, right? Well, first thing you got to see is, look back at verse 14, and this is why you got to read your Bibles carefully, right? So first point, what is it? You've got to read your Bibles carefully because it says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which seems like a noun, the abomination of desolation, it could be an event, it could be a thing, it could be a federation of nations, but then notice that Jesus says, standing where he ought not to be. You see that? What does that tell you? It's a person. It's a person. Now, that person might represent a kingdom. That person will probably lead a federation of nations. That person is a he. Because the Bible is very clear. It says, standing where he not to, ought, ought not to be. Now, what does abomination mean? Now, you and I can say, that's an abomination. It's an abomination that the Chargers are not in the Super Bowl. What an abomination. But in a biblical context, abomination means something that's detestable and immoral in the eyes of God. But when you're talking about in the eyes of God, you're talking about something that defames the holiness of God and the holy things of God. Something that is so distasteful, something that is so utterly, completely, exponentially disrespectful to God and his word and his, 
his, uh, his system of worship that he set up, or anything that is attributed to God, that's the context. So abomination means something that is blasphemous, blasphemy, right? But in a biblical context, desolation refers to not just destruction, but complete destruction. So when you combine those two words, you get this idea of something that's completely blasphemous to the hundredth degree times complete utter destruction. And that's what this he, this person, will bring. He will bring blasphemy against God, against the people of God, and against the things of God, and he will bring complete destruction to the things of God the name of God, and the people of God. And so the destruction of the Jewish temple and the defaming of the Jewish temple would fit the bill, right? Would fit the bill. But you know what? It's, it's a little more challenging than, than this because look at how Jesus warns us in verses 15 and 18 of how terrible this event will be. I mean, this is horrendous. I mean, you got to kind of think about it and you kind of ask yourself, okay, it was bad, Okay, in AD 70, when, when the Roman army marched in and burned Jerusalem down to the ground, and, and yes, people likely lost their lives, or, I, I, or they did, but there were also people who fled. But think about how horrible this will be, and just try to envision if this will happen again, and I think it will, and I think we see it happening throughout warfare, throughout History. So this is, there's multiple levels of fulfillment, but there will be a final fulfillment. But look at verse 15. It says, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house. So what we saw there, what we read, it's you don't even want to go home to grab your stuff. This is not, you know, a, a natural disaster is coming. You're going to evacuate soon. So go get your stuff. No, no it says don't even, don't even go down. You've got to run. Don't take anything. Don't, don't even try to take anything. You're not going to be able to make it. Let the one who is in the field not turn back. Don't even get your jacket. It's going to be hot. No, I'm just kidding. Don't. <laughs> the eternal judgment will be, right? But don't even grab your jacket, right? And then it says, for, for women who are pregnant, but, but it's too late. You're already pregnant. And those who are nursing infants, forget the formula. You don't even want to be nursing infants. You don't want to be breastfeeding. You know, forget it. You don't need to go get your breastfeeding cover. You don't, you don't need your bag. You don't need to be. If you're pregnant, forget about it. Right? And, and so what's the point Jesus is trying to make? He's just trying to say that it's going to be so bad that if you're pregnant, you're, it's going to be very difficult to escape. You'll be heavy. You'll be tired. You can't escape. You can't escape he, the abomination of desolation. And if you're nursing infants, you're, you're not going to make it. If you're a young adult and, and you don't have anything and you run, you might escape for a little bit. And it says, pray that it may not happen in winter. There's no crazy symbolism to read in there. It's simply saying if, if there's inclement weather, it's going to be even harder to escape. And so what's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is you don't want to be around. You don't want to be alive during this time when it comes. Now, was this fulfilled in AD 70? Yes, at one level. At one level, it was that bad, right? When Titus and the Roman army marched in and burned Jerusalem, and when they destroyed and razed the temple down to the ground, and when they burned the temple, yeah, it's that bad. But we know from history, and I'll show you later, that the Christians who had warning were able to escape. But it seems like this is going to be worse. Now, I mentioned that if you're Jewish, you understood these 
this terminology, abomination of desolation, right? And Matthew actually gives us the insight. Matthew, the same account, all of the discourse, Jesus teaching about the end times, in Matthew 24, verse 15, Matthew sees, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and we know that this is a person, standing in the holy place, which obviously that's the temple. So when you see this person standing in the place where God is to be worshipped or the holy seat of God or whatever symbolizes the presence of God in this world, that's what they thought of, right? That is the abomination of desolation. You better be ready. And so Matthew 24, 15 points us back to Daniel. And I know that in Daniel chapter 7, the abomination of desolation is mentioned. Now, it would take me an, a whole hour to explain that. I actually have slides uh, that, that the team up there can see at the end of the sermon that I decided to take out because as I ran through it, it took me an hour to explain it. So we're not going to do that today. So feel free to, I don't know, call for a Sunday school class and we can do that. But I think that we don't need to explain Daniel 7. You simply go to Daniel 11, 31, because what Jesus is doing is he's making a reference to a horrible event in history. So before I, I go there, I'm going to show you what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying the abomination of desolation is coming. You thought Antiochus IV Epiphanes was bad? It's going to be something like Antiochus. There's going to be an Antichrist figure that comes that is like Antiochus, but so much worse. So with that, let's go to Daniel 11. All right, Daniel 11, Daniel 11, verse 31. In Daniel 11, verse 31, the prophet Daniel uses the terminology, right, of abomination of desolation. You can see that in Daniel 11.1. 1, there is that language of abomination of desolation, right? But all scholars, regardless of your view of the end times, agree and believe, all Bible students agree and believe that Daniel 11.31 was prophesying events that happened in 167 B.C. approximately. And it was referring to Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was the king of the Seleucid Empire. And Antiochus IV, he, he controlled Israel from 175 to 165 BC. He desecrated the temple. One scholar explains, <clears throat> one scholar explains, quote, Antiochus treated Israel with such violence and contempt that they rebelled against him. And so when he came to suppress the rebellion, his forces entered the temple. They stopped the regular sacrifices. That's blasphemous, right? Set up an idol of the altar for Zeus, and apparently he offered pigs, swine, for sacrifice. And this is an abomination because it's idolatry, and it brings desolation because it defiles the holy place at the heart of Israel. This act was abomination of desolation, the abomination causing desolation, end quote. That's how one scholar explains it. And so everybody agrees 
that in Daniel 11.31, it's talking about an historical event for us, Antiochus IV. And for Jesus' disciples, it was also a historical event for them. Meaning in Jewish history, if you're Jewish during the time of Jesus, and, and you're one of his disciples, and you mention abomination of desolation, they're like, oh, Antiochus. It's almost like me saying to you today, remember Hitler. And you're like, ooh, yeah. And, and so if, if Jesus were speaking today, it would be like, remember Hitler, but it's going to be much worse. It's going to be much worse. You're not even going to want to be alive. And, and, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's using an illustration. Now, here's where it gets tricky. It gets tricky because there's multiple levels of fulfillment. In Daniel 11.31, there's the one level of fulfillment, Antiochus IV, that was fulfilled 167 B.C. But for Jesus' disciples, there would be a fulfillment that comes after his ascension in AD 70. That's what we taught last week, where Titus is a type of abomination of desolation, right? Where he brings the Romans in, and they desecrate the temple. They destroy the temple. They completely destroy the temple, the Jewish temple. But then... The context of Mark and Matthew makes it challenging evermore because it points forward to the end times. And that leads us to point number two, okay? Point number two is why is it still future? So what is the abomination of desolation? The abomination of desolation is a reference to a historical event and a historical figure, a he, a person that Daniel talked about. The abomination of desolation refers to Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, who desecrated and, and was blasphemous towards Israel. The abomination of desolation refers to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, so multiple levels of fulfillment. But the abomination of desolation points forward and will find final fulfillment in the future. How do we know this? Very simple. Look at the text. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Back to our passage. Why is it still future? First, back in verse 14, Jesus says, when you see, meaning you haven't seen it yet. It's not Antiochus. Antiochus was, but there's, it's going to be worse. Now, by the time you receive Mark's gospel, right, you're understanding this a little more, and now we look back, we're like 80, 70. Some scholars say that was it. But here's the challenge. Here's the challenge, right, is that in verse 19, it says, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So I'm going to repeat things so that you can follow me, okay? Jesus is not saying it's Antiochus IV. Why? Because he says when you see. Now, some historical scholars will say, well, yeah, yeah, Jesus was talking about AD 70. So it's done. It's done for us today in in 2018. It's done. Or 2019 is done, right? But here's the problem. Look at Jesus' words. Look at Jesus' words. And let me give you some interpretation, okay? It says, for in those days there will be such tribulation. What's tribulation? Suffering, right? Torture, suffering, horrible suffering, trials like no other, that has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now. So that's saying this is worse than Noah's flood. Uh, 80, 70 was bad, but it's not worse 
than Noah's flood. Jesus is saying there will be destruction and tribulation like nothing that has ever happened in cosmic history. This is worse than the flood. And then it says, never will be. And I don't know about you, but we are still alive. The human race is still alive. Which means that I don't think, and I think if you take Jesus literally, I don't think this has happened yet. So Jesus is is kind of, you know, being prophetic, right? He's like, I'm referring to history for the sake of illustration. It's going to be like Antiochus, but much worse. AD 70 happened. Oh, that was bad. But that's not the worst. The worst is yet to come. And that's why when you understand there will be such tribulation, why is this talking about a great future tribulation? Because, because you go down to verse 24. Okay, verse 24. And this is next week's passage. Mark 13, verses 24 to 27. Jesus puts this tribulation... In, in context, right before his second coming. It says, but in those days after that tribulation, so after that tribulation, so I don't know about you, you want to go symbolic or literal, you got to read it, right? Like what other tribulation are you talking about? Well, probably the one that you mentioned in the same chapter, meaning the same word that I used, unless I tell you that it means something else, I'm probably talking about the same thing. When I'm talking about the Lakers, I'm probably talking about the Los Angeles Lakers, And not some people sitting on a lake. Otherwise, I would tell you, right? And so, but in those days, after that tribulation that I just mentioned, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give give its light. When has that happened? The moon doesn't give its light. And some of you are saying, well, Hanley, that's poetic. That's symbolic. I believe that it is, but that's poetic of complete darkness and destruction and the end of the world, Right? And the stars will be falling from heaven. That's, that's crazy. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Talking about powerful, crazy earthquakes. Catastrophic, cosmic destruction. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So then this hasn't happened yet. Where the entire world will see Jesus Christ coming in great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels to gather his elect. So whoever's still alive that believes in Jesus Christ will be gathered from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And and Jesus is saying, this is the end of the world. And so that's why we believe this is future. Because Jesus describes it as, as something that we have never, ever experienced yet in human history. And even if the language is symbolic, the symbolic language is describing something so bad that you and I have not tasted it yet or read about it in history. Furthermore, the same type of idea is taught by Jesus' disciples. Right? You look at Paul in 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 He's, he's using similar exhortation as Jesus, right? Jesus says, don't let anybody deceive you. 
Right? Paul says the same thing. And he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, he says, let, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, meaning the, the man of lawlessness, the antichrist, the abomination of desolation, the future person who will persecute Christians and claim to be God and claim to be blasphemous, it will not come, right? So meaning the second coming will not happen. The second coming will not happen unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So Jesus will return when the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself, exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship that seems blasphemous so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So it seems to us very clear that Jesus spoke of he, the abomination of desolation, being blasphemous and destructive and, and taking the place of God, claiming to be God, in the seat of God, in the temple of God. And it seems that Paul is describing the same type of person, but giving him the title, man of lawlessness. And so we believe this is the future antichrist. What else? What else do the New Testament authors teach us? Well, there's the apostle John. And John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And so John heard Jesus' teaching. John walked with Jesus. And John received the revelation, right? The revelation that speaks forward. And so Revelation 13.5 describes the Antichrist as a beast. And the time given to him is 42 month, months, which is approximately three and a half years. So whether you take a literal seven years or a symbolic seven years, we know that the Bible describes the final three and a half years. The final three and a half years before Jesus returns because the rest of Revelation tells you that at the end of these 42 months or times, times and times and a half, which is three and a half years or, um, or 1260 or 1290 days, depending on which passage you're looking at. It's about three and a half years approximately. It says in Revelation 13, five to six, describing the abomination of desolation as a person, it says, and the beast, it's not talking about Marshawn Lynch, okay? The, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It seems abomination, blasphemous. Right? Uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to other blasphemies, abomination against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. So he's criticizing the saints who are already in heaven and persecuting those who come to Christ on earth. And so Jesus and the New Testament authors agree and they make it clear that abomination of desolation is still future. I don't know what other way to convince you. So is there historical fulfillment? Yes. Yes. There is historical fulfillment. Yes. Antiochus IV was the abomination of desolation. Yes. The, the, the partial preterists have, have validity. In AD 70, the abomination of desolation happened. Yes, it was fulfilled to one level. Last week, we talked about already, not yet. So what Jesus is talking about is already fulfilled by Antiochus, is already fulfilled in AD 70 at the destruction of the temple, which is what the disciples were talking about in Mark 13, but it's not yet fully fulfilled. Multiple levels of fulfillment, which makes it hard to get. It makes it hard to understand, right? It, it, it's tricky. 
it's tricky, but we have to kind of understand this because the rest of the New Testament demands it. And Mark 13 itself, the context that Jesus is talking about, he's describing things like nothing that's ever happened in creation. Jesus himself, the immediate context, demands a futuristic eschatology. So this morning, I am arguing for a historic yet future, future fulfillment, right? It's both. It's already and not yet. Now look at verse 20 of our passage. Go back to Mark 13 if you're not there. Go back to verse 20. And it says it's so bad, right? So verse 19 is talking about it's so bad. No event like this has ever happened since the beginning of creation. And then verse 20 says, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. The elect are those who have been chosen and called by God from before the foundation of the world to be believers. And in the context of Revelation, if we believe that cut short refers to three and a half years. That's what a lot of conservative futuristic scholars would understand Jesus is talking about. That during that time, it will be so bad that whoever's around who turns to Jesus, they will be persecuted. They will suffer. Many of them will be put to death. The tribulation saints. But Jesus is going to limit it to three and a half years. If not, everybody would die. It's so bad. right? The events are so bad. The horror is so bad that Jesus has to cut short the reign of this future Antichrist figure and limit him to 42 months or three and a half years or 1260 days, depending on your passage that you're looking at, right? In verse 21, and it says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, meaning here's the Messiah, look, there he is. Don't believe it because there will be a lot of false messiahs, including the Antichrist, leading up to the Antichrist as well. Verse 22, for false Christs and false prophets will rise, and they will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. That's crazy. This is not part of my manuscript, okay, but if you'll give me two minutes, go to Revelation 13. I want you to see this. I'm going to read a large portion of Scripture, and I just want you to understand the teaching of Jesus. Not going to be able to exposit all of it, but I want you to see this future figure, this Antichrist figure, this abomination of desolation, Revelation 13. You need to know that many of these symbols are mentioned in Daniel. We're not going to have time to explain all of it, but I just want you to read and to see what we mean by this, the the persecution of the saints, the three and a half years, the cutting short of time. And I want you to see the similar call of Jesus, right? You see this call for endurance for whoever does come to Christ during that time. Look at Revelation 13. Then I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, blasphemous names, abomination of desolation, names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to to the dragon it gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of the dragon, Satan, right? One of his, his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, a false Christ, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So that's what it's saying, that a lot of people will be deceived. Jesus talked about this, right? Verse 4, and they worshipped the dragon, for that's Satan, for he had given his authority to this beast, the Antichrist, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth, 
uttering, and I'm going to put in the words abomination of desolation, but Revelation says haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed, meaning God allowed this Antichrist to exercise authority for three and a half years, 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. That's abomination, right? Blaspheming his name and his dwelling. And that, that is those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7, it also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So this Antichrist will have authority over the nations for three and a half years. False authority. Right? In verse 8, and all who dwell on earth, will, on earth will worship it, meaning they will be deceived. Everyone whose name has not been written, this is the elect that Jesus is talking about, if your name is not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, meaning genuine believers who were predestined for salvation before the world began, if they were not part of the elect, then they will be deceived. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You see that in Mark, where Jesus is calling also that if you are around, you have to endure. Right? Now, Chapter 13 of Revelation gives us a second beast. And you're like, Hanley, there's two of these guys? Yeah, there's two of them. Okay, there's two of them. And that's why it's not Marshawn Lynch. Okay. Uh, in verse 11, it says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. And we believe this is a false prophet, a wannabe holy spirit. Right? So you have, you have God the Father, while you have Satan the dragon. You have God the Son, you have the Antichrist, the false Christ. You have God the Holy Spirit, you have a false prophet who draws people to, the, to worship the Antichrist. Verse 12, and it exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wounds was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from hev heaven to earth in front of people. I haven't seen that yet. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in, in the presence of the beast, it deceives. This is what Jesus is warning about, right? Don't listen to these people if they say they are the Christ. Or if they say that, look, look, there is the Christ. The false prophet's going to look at the Antichrist and say, look, he's the Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about. That there's going to be a second beast that says, look, he's the Christ. He's Jesus. He's the Christ. And by the signs allowed to work in the presence of the beast, right, deceived, uh, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. In verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might even cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead. So that no one can buy or sell he has, unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. We're not going to explain that today. But I want you to see that Jesus, very clearly, he's talking about look out for this this kind of deception. Jesus actually predicts this. There's going to be a guy who says he's the Christ. 
Don't listen to him. There's going to be another person that says, look, he's the Christ. Don't listen to that guy either. And Jesus puts this into the future before his second coming. I don't know why people are confused about eschatology. It's so clear if you just read the Bible. Just read the Bible. Jesus is clear. And I know there's debates, and I know there's different views, but there's certain things that are so clear that if we just read the New Testament and the Old Testament and the words of Jesus in context and take it at a grammatical, historical, interpretive level, we would not be confused because Jesus did not want to be confused. And why am I saying this? I'm saying this because look back again at verse 21 and 22. Jesus is saying, don't be led astray. Notice that he doesn't say, don't be led astray. You will be confused by systematic theologians. He doesn't say that. You know, he doesn't say, don't be led astray. You will be confused because eschatology is a secondary, second-level doctrine. Yes, it is a second-level. It's not a primary doctrine. But Jesus doesn't say, don't be, you know, it's okay. You're going to be confused about the end times. But, you know, don't be led, led astray. Just be confused about the end times and agree to disagree. Right? He's not saying that. He says, look, there are some things that are certain. That is that he's coming back that there will be antichrist, it's going to be really, really bad, and it's going to be future, right? And it's going to be horrible, and you need to know the Bible, and, and, and Jesus is going to give you that, right? And, and he says, if possible, this false prophet and this false, false Christ is going to try to lead the elect astray, but we know that the elect cannot be led astray because their, their names are written in the book of life. Right In the book, before the foundation of the world, it's written in the book. They cannot be led astray, but, but this false Christ is going to try to deceive genuine believers. That's how bad it's going to be, and that leads us to point number three, how shall we live? And that's why I believe Jesus is saying you need to know eschatology. You need to know the end times. You need to hear what I'm saying, and you need to see that you shouldn't be content with confusion. Because he says, be on guard. Well, how do you be on guard if it's so confusing, Jesus? He says, be on guard. It's not confusing because I have told you all things beforehand. He tells us all things we need to know. Next week, you're going to see that he doesn't tell us the exact time or day or hour of his coming. Right? So he hasn't told us that. He hasn't told us when it's going to happen. Right? But... He says, be on guard because I've told you all things that you need to know. So in other words, be warned, be informed, and be ready with the knowledge of Scripture, being informed with discernment, and be alert. That's what Jesus says. And I don't think Jesus was trying to be confusing. So remember in AD 70 when the Romans burned Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple? That was a type of fulfillment, right, of the abomination of desolation. Guess what? Jesus did successfully warn the early church. I'll put this up here for you. One historian, right, history tells us that many Christians did flee when AD 70 came and when the destruction of the temple happened and when Jerusalem was burned. So one level of fulfillment of the abomination of desolation that Eusebius, the first great historian of the church, says that when the Romans fell upon Jerusalem, it says the church at Jerusalem left the city and moved to a town called Pella. 
They were informed. They heard and listened to the words of Jesus. They looked for the signs. They knew that the abomination of desolation for them at their level was coming. And what did they do? They were able to flee. But it seems like Jesus is describing a time that where people can't flee, a time that is yet to come. And so application, likewise for us, we know we're already in the last days, but we know that at any time the Antichrist and his federation of kingdoms can emerge and will be revealed. And we know that at any time Jesus can return, but he's already warned us and we must be on guard, right? And so the big idea of today's message I think what Jesus would want us to walk away with is don't be left in the dark. Don't be left in the dark. Literally, don't be left in the dark. Look to Christ. And you're going to see next week that there's a lot of darkness. Right? Literally, symbolic language describes cosmic darkness. Don't be left in the dark. Look to Christ who prepares us through Scripture. He says, I prepared you beforehand, all things you need to know. So don't be left in the dark. Look to Christ who prepares us for scripture. And I think when you say, what does this look like for us applicationally? I think our vision is perfect. Is it in light of living in the last days, right? We are to live, we're to love passionately, love God passionately. We're to live authentically. It's to live genuine discipleship in, in you know, being in preparation for the coming of Christ. We are to give generously, Invest in the eternal kingdom. The end is, we're in the last days. Our time, talents, and treasures give everything that we can to Christ in ways that he would allow us to. And then we got to go courageously into this world with hearts of evangelism, living a missional lifestyle. So in light of living in the last days, I put on your handout three applicational questions that we should all answer for ourselves. Number one, what are some personal challenges to living as genuine disciples of Christ. To live authentically as followers of Christ, what are the personal challenges, even for me? What are the personal challenges? And all of us are going to answer this very differently. Number two, how can you steward your resources? We are to give generously in in these last days. How do we give our time? How do we give our talent? How do we discover our spiritual gifts and deploy them for the eternal kingdom because the time is short? And how do we use our treasure that God has gifted us, you know, to invest in his eternal kingdom? And and thirdly, what does it look like for us to live courageously as individuals, as everyday missionaries? Come back next week. We'll look at the second coming. Okay, let's pray. Father, we come before you and we see that eschatology is a difficult topic, but your word is clear. You want us to be prepared. You want us to look out Lord, for false Christs and false messiahs. And you want us to anticipate your return. Help us, Lord, as disciples of Jesus to be students of Scripture. But help us not just to be nerds that shy away from this world. Help us not to have a fortress mentality either. But help us, Lord, to be salt and light, to be a faithful presence of the gospel and of Christ, imaging your Son in our families, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, and in the world. Help us to bring the gospel to the nations wherever you've called us to, Lord, whether it's locally or globally. Lord, help us to be everyday missionaries. And in that way, Lord, 
that we would live in light of your return. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.